Hi, this is Aaron Azrod, and welcome to the 111th episode of the Truth Island podcast. The recent volatility on the stock market might seem like a random one-off, once-in-a-lifetime occurrence. However, if there's anything that 2020 and the first month of 2021 has taught us, absolutely nothing is random and everything builds upon the shoulders of previous events. Last week, Joe and I discussed the growing challenges that our current economy faces caused not just by the pandemic, but also the increased usage of automation and the lack of jobs that pay a livable wage. While at first glance, it might appear that these problems are simply restricted to the most disadvantaged among us, much like a virus, poverty has a nasty tendency to spread. If you casually take a look at the names on the Forbes 500, you might imagine many of these people have a secret golden vault where they keep all of their money. But what if I were to tell you that most of the richest of America don't have their wealth tied up in golden coins or even paper money for that matter, but in stocks, bonds, and other non-liquid assets? Anytime a company falls in value, somebody's net worth becomes that much more or less. An important thing to remember is that a person is only subject to capital gains tax upon selling stocks in which they have made a profit. Therefore, the truly rich own many shares of a small but diverse set of well-to-do companies that they seldom touch, hoping in the long run, the market in general pulls them ahead. For example, a multimillionaire might have holdings in real estate, stocks, IRAs, businesses, and mutual funds, knowing full well that money sitting in a savings account or in a golden vault isn't doing all that much for them. However, what happens when people can't afford to buy any of their real estate or purchase goods from the businesses that they own? You see, assets are only as valuable as the amount that someone is willing to pay for them. A business, for example, that manufactures cars is destined to fail unless people are willing to buy those cars. The wealthy do make luxury purchases every now and then, but just how many cars can one person buy? How many homes can one person own? Additionally, assets in which people are unwilling to pay for quickly become liabilities when you take into consideration things such as property tax and routine maintenance costs. For example, it is believed that the descendants of the newspaper tycoon William Randolph Hearst had to donate their father's estate, Hearst Castle, to the state of California because of the huge operating costs. No matter how wealthy one might be, wealth tends to shrink over time, over the course of several generations, unless appropriate investments are made. If there are no businesses which are turning a profit, money tends to collect dust. Even worse, if the stock values of too many companies drops or businesses owned fold, money also tends to disappear. You see, the rich have it a lot better than all of us. However, in the end, no one is fully immune from the destruction of our economy. During the Great Depression, most millionaires had their net wealth halved, with those most in danger having their values in stocks. In 2008, landlords who owned multiple properties were some of the most detrimentally affected having to file for bankruptcy as they remained unable to either rent or sell the property that they owned. 
it's important to remember that a $12 million house ceases to be a $12 million house if there is no one left who can purchase it. Even worse, that $12 million soon turns into a $12 million liability, which, this, which then gets passed on to banks, which is precisely one of the things that brought down the 158-year-old company Lehman Brothers. Keeping people too poor for too long has consequences for everyone. Joining me to help analyze and solve some of these problems, I am once again joined by Joe. Joe, I'm going to start us off with a joke. Are you ready? Sure, I'm ready. What's the one thing that's worse than being poor? What's that? Being rich and then becoming poor. <laughs> there's a lot of there's a lot of truth to that. There's a lot of truth to that, you know, and, and I and having friends that have gone and made that journey, I've seen firsthand how difficult it is. And, you know, friends that have been able to handle it well and friends that have not been able to handle it well at all. And it is a challenge. It is a challenge because they have this idea, this false sense of security that their lives were set for life. They, they were set for life. And unfortunately, what they didn't really recognize was the underlying values of the assets they held. Uh, so I, I can give you a perfect example. I knew somebody that owned uh, 14 properties and they were doing quite well. And it was during the right before the crisis. Sure. And so he does this interesting calculation. He comes in and he says, I have I'm moving everything from a 30 year mortgage to a 15 year mortgage. Mm, yeah. And I've heard so that I'm going to bad idea. <laughs> well, and I'm thinking to myself, <laughs> you know, and, but it was interesting because he, he just, he was very good at executing on making a property work, buying a property, you know, saving and, and, and just managing the property. But he didn't necessarily understand the underlying value. Right. And that was the issue. So what happened did was- you, I'm just okay. curious, like, did, did it ever occur to him to just start paying more principal off? Like, I'm wondering what made him actually switch to a- Well, they got a better rate. So the rate oh, was- okay. so, so he said, I'm going to calculate this down. I'm going to get a re refinance. I'm going to get a great rate at 15%. And I said to myself that, and I, and I even told him, actually, I said, I think that that's a terrible idea. But he said, no, I've crunched these numbers and this is what it's worth. And he came back with- huge savings in his calculation mm -hmm. well what happened he starts paying extra he gets he gets you know more equity in the homes all the prices drop yeah and all of a sudden that he even starts he was showing a loss where he was actually maintaining a gain at one point with the 30-year mortgages and 15-year mortgages well okay now he's got a liquidity issue and there were some people that weren't paying him rent. So he even has a bigger problem. When it came time to foreclose, he had a lot of equity in these properties. And all of a sudden, the bank said, okay, we'll take that back. Yeah. Because we can sell it, uh, you know, for a, for not that they want to, but that, you know, we, you have enough equity. If you paid us 125, you have 175, uh, bound, or, you know, you, uh, you paid to pay cost bought it for 175 well then we can sell still sell it for 75 
Yeah. And, and so the idea that the banks had the incentive to take back these properties, whereas they wouldn't have otherwise. If, if he had if, been at a 30, then he would not right. have put in as much like, I guess, exactly. equity into it. And then they'd be like, well, you know, I can't, we can't, since you have such little equity put into this, we can't sell this at a, yeah, at a profit. And we'll, and we'll work with you and we'll yeah. work with you on that. But here's the thing is that that was very interesting is that he didn't understand the fundamental value of what he owned. And that overall, that was a problem that we saw in the economy, yeah. is that people never understood the value of the properties they actually owned during the 2008 crisis. They just thought it was something that was always going to go up. And he didn't even necessarily hold that belief, but he, he failed to understand what was the true value of the properties that he owned. And that was, and, and that was the challenge that we're seeing now in analyzing companies and just assets in general is that and part of this is and i don't want to go too much into this but sometimes when cheap money is around that that becomes a problem you start to see these bubbles exist no thank you and and thank you for um sharing that story and i hope i hope your friend is doing much better you know 12 years or so later you know i i think that this is a really good lesson because a lot of what i hear is you know it you know it's going to you know it's going to be the rich versus the poor and so forth and to some degree it will be that but what i i kind of and you know maybe if there's some rich people listening to this maybe they ought to lend me their ear for a moment in in the sense that when you have no middle class and when you have growing numbers of impoverished people everybody is more at risk okay if you own a mansion outright with no mortgage all right well you're at less of a risk but you're still there's still a risk to be had because you have to pay your soul you still owe your property tax the wealth that you once had in stocks is no longer there and it becomes hard you know the butler is not going to be uh serving you food for free and kind smiles so everybody is at risk when the economy crashes and what happened and this is this is the part of the story that's not really your friend's fault is because of the subprime mortgage crisis and that people were getting loans that they did not qualify for because wages have not been keeping up, the more poor people you have, the less that you actually can do with your assets in terms of finding a, a buyer or finding people to rent these assets out. This is this is the thing that wealthy people just don't seem to understand is that you can own like your friend did like seven or eight houses and feel like a king, feel like a feudal lord for a while. But at the end of the day, if there's no serfs that to, to live in your house or to buy your your house, it doesn't really mean anything. And you know, this this is something that I see in my neighborhood in Queens all the time. I see all of these properties that just outwardly sit there vacant collecting dust you know the owner's still paying property tax and still you know has to if someone if some random dude falls in front of his vacant building and you know breaks their back he's still liable for that lawsuit so all you have this thing that is very expensive and it soon becomes a liability all because people are too darn poor to actually utilize the assets that you have to offer and that's that's the thing that's missing from all of this and that's the thing that people don't get I think that the, that's a fantastic point because you know the the one principle that my my uh, friend failed to really understand in this whole process, and and I think it's representative of a lot of the wealthy people uh, today, 
Um, and I shouldn't make generalized statements like that, but, but I, I think there's enough evidence to support what I'm saying is there's a difference between how well you're doing with assets and then what it's sustainable. Yeah. And that's, that's what we're really getting to. What is sustainable? And what is sustainable is when you really focus on what, you know, how are people going to pay me rent and what do they need in order to pay me rent? And it's kind of a negotiation between the two of you. It's that you really need to make sure. And I, and I, maybe I, the rental example is a bad example, but even if you're talking about with uh, an employee and employer relationship, you know, how are you going to essentially ensure that there's going to be a market to buy your goods? And that's, that's really what we're talking about here is, and there seems to be, one of the things that we have seen and the reason why people are so upset is the and i think it's one of the most important issues uh that we're faced with today is income inequality yes because right now what we're seeing is not necessarily sustainable and how you correct that it gets a little bit more uh, difficult to answer that question but it's a problem, and I think it is one of the problems that we're currently faced with in, in the world today. In the world, not just the United States. The United States is at the forefront, you know, at the is definitely at the forefront of this, but it's not necessarily just a United States issue. I, you know, I, I largely agree that this is an income inequality thing, and I think part of the problem is that we've actually been talking to rich people in the wrong way. I think that I hear a lot of like, how, how can you be so callous? How, how can you do this to people? How, how can you be so evil? Have you not read Charles Dickens' uh, A Christmas Carol? And these people just don't give a crap. Like we have to just start getting to the point where it's like, they don't really care and they don't care as much about how people are, are suffering. I'm just gonna be honest here. I don't think they really care. I think the only way that we can kind of change their practices is for them to start seeing the, like you just said, the underlying sustainability of what it is that they're doing. And I think, I think the, um, the issue we see with GameStop is actually the, the perfect, the perfect um, kind of window into what exactly is going on here. What the GameStop situation um, represents is how rich people kind of judge how rich they are. If you look at the Forbes 500, if you look at any of these lists, it's all based on net worth. And then typically this is like, um, you know, the value of shares that you own in companies and, and things of that sort. And my suspicion, and this is a suspicion that has become even stronger with the onset of the pandemic, is that the market is not a representation as to how the actual economy is doing. And I'm not, I'm not saying anything breathtaking here. This has been said a thousand times over, but I think the GameStop issue actually kind of is a window and actually really just kind of shows the final version of that. And I think that a lot of wealthy people just say, hey, if the stock market is doing well, I'm still a rich guy. I'm still a rich dude. If, if my stocks are still doing well, if the companies that I'm invested in are still highly valued, if my mutual funds are still doing extremely well, I can still call myself a rich guy. My net worth is still the same. And they're technically correct. 
But what they don't realize is that if your wealth is not sustainable and people can't buy those new cars, they can't buy your house, they can't rent the properties that you have to offer, it's all going to kind of fizzle away. And I think that what's been going on for too long, and this actually, I think, uh, predates the pandemic, is that we have a lot of propaganda going on, Joe. We have a lot of companies putting on uh, dog and pony shows, making it seem as if they have incredible value and ideas. And you know, you hear these buzzwords, innovation, genius, um, revolutionize. But when you actually look under the hood, there may not actually be all that much going on. That's that's the difficult part is that, you know, there's a lack of transparency as to what really is going on many times. So when you don't have that transparency that you're really not able to assess value accurately, and that's where the market sometimes is failing. And we've seen this in the past, right? With things, and uh, I know that you've uh, thought about things like Enron and, and, in companies that, that you know since uh, or even even before even we can go back to the 2008 crisis that there wasn't a lot of transparent although there was more transparency than people probably would have liked to admit it but that there it really isn't clear what the value is of these companies and what's really going on underneath and then long term where they're going to end up Right. And what happens is you have people putting their 401ks on the line and their life savings on the lines. And that's where it becomes a very uh, – that they're not necessarily well-informed investors. Yeah, no, the, you're, you're absolutely right. I'm going to kind of give like the really short, simple version of Enron and Lehman Brothers here. As, some, as most people probably know, um, as you go higher in a company, you know, you have a lot of stock options, you know, so your, your value becomes tied, you're, you're buying, the, you're getting those stocks at, at um, you know, either a premium rate or just, they're just afforded to you. So a lot of your net worth and a lot of your value is through stocks within that particular company. And you see that you see this happening in Enron and in Lehman Brothers. So the CEO's incentive, you know, until they can get out, that is, is to keep though and, and shareholders in general is to keep those shares as high as humanly possible right until they have an exit strategy once they have an exit strategy they could care less what the hell happens right so it's it's one of these things where it's like i want these share values to be as high as possible until i can get the hell out of here right and then and then i can watch the uh the the submarine sink long after i'm gone and, I've and that's kept- problematic as well yeah that's a very problematic incentive structure because the goal is to keep the the stock prices as high as possible cash out on the high and then just fly on out of there and just you know oh yeah it's a shame that that happened under andrew but it's like no it actually happened under you you kind of just aborted at the right moment. Right. And what you have in those in both of those companies is you had some people who looked at the financial reports, right? And and the people at Lehman Brothers looked at the financial reports and on paper they saw, look guys, look how many mortgages we closed. We have all this interest rate all these interest payments coming in, right? That on paper, they were able to show everybody that oh my god, we've closed, you know, 100,000 mortgages, whatever it was. And they were able to show on paper how much interest was coming in. And they wrote that off as, as profit, like, okay, this is all profit. What they didn't, what they're not telling you is that those people could fundamentally not pay those mortgages and those would quickly turn to liabilities. Like that's that's the part of the story that they're not saying. 
But the incentive was is to keep up the facade and to keep up the fireworks and to keep up the propaganda machine of like, everything is fine here, record number of mortgages closed, record number of uh, interest payments coming in. And what happens is that the incentive of these companies is not to actually produce real value. It's actually to produce propaganda. Like it doesn't matter whether you're actually selling anything. Like I think, I think, you know, perhaps in another time period, how would you judge the value of a company, Joe? Well, I mean, that's it. It, it becomes form over substance. But I think that what we really was really hit on something that I, I want to maybe come back to just for a brief second if you if, yeah for sure yeah, it would be okay but it's, it's this idea of executive compensation mm-hmm. and how executives are being compensated essentially they're they're they have incentives to well in certain cases that they're compensated no matter what right so even if they do poorly or bad they're not necessarily held accountable for what they do i mean there are people that are managed failing companies and gotten 30 40 million dollar packages which is and it gets back to that idea of income inequality. And, and I think that that's another, this is another step in the idea of, you know, what is really going on in these companies? And then what are the incentive structures that are underlying their values? Yes. And I, and, and I, and I, and I, and what people that uh, tend to be, let's just say some of the business leaders that are doing so well fail to recognize is, that regulators will come in if you don't regulate yourself at some point. And you don't know how that you might think that. And even they may try and game the system to a certain point to, you know, so that regulators are essentially going to work in their favor. However, what people do need to realize is that they have a lot more stake at stake here than what they think they have. And I don't think anybody's really been having that conversation with the one percent per se, <laughs> and, and so and I think that that's problematic. And and so I, I and, and I'll you know I'll just leave it there for a minute because I, I think that that's something that's worth exploring a little bit is this this idea of what are even people being compensated for at a certain point because right. it's not for value, and nope. and I and I think that that's an issue. Uh, and then so at that point, what are they actually pr- what are they pumping like, you know, they're 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 basically just pushing a facade instead of actually pushing what actually is going on. And in, it, it, I've never heard a politician and I always thought that this even during the 2020 campaign would have been great if somebody spoke about executive compensation or something along those lines so that we could have an honest conversation as to why people are compensated anyway. And then you can start to have a better understanding of the underlying value that an individual brings to a company. Yes. And then what, what is the value? And, and I, and I think that these are conversations that we just don't have anyway. Uh, but that's just my two cents. No, I know that's actually very brilliant. I mean, first off, we, we can one on the surface say that they just make too much darn money compared to the employees overall, right? Like, right. you know, maybe that maybe you know, if their annual salary was just a million dollars a year, you know, may, maybe something like that is is the answer. And then, oh, well, no, that's gonna, you're not gonna get the best people. And I'm like, listen, 
listen, you'll get some pretty darn good people for a million dollars. Exactly. So don't tell me that they're not gonna they're gonna just fall asleep at the wheel. They're already you know they're already falling asleep at the wheel. Right. Uh, exactly. You know, exactly. Like, exactly. You know, so don't don't play that card with like you know a million dollars. There's a lot of smart people out there who'll take that job. Yeah. That's number one. Num- number two is I think what you said is why are we compensating them more? Well, for regular folk, you're compensated for your performance, right? That's and right. If, you're, if you're a salesman or a sales lady, you are compensated for the number of sales that you close, right? It's simple as that. Anyone who sold uh, used cars knows that you are, you know, you get a commission on every car that you sell. My question is, why aren't CEOs compensated in the same exact way? It's like, Sales reports, good old-fashioned sales reports. Like, are sales up? Or are they down? Oh, it seems under your watch they're they're down. And I think what happened is that maybe there was a time in our economy where, when sales were down, the CEO would blush and get a little nervous, and he'd be like, "All right, well, I'm not taking a bonus this year. We're gonna, I'm gonna roll up my sleeves. I'm gonna sit down with the with with the sales team, and we're gonna work this out, and we're gonna improve. I'm gonna go down to the to the uh, to the factory floor. We're gonna improve like some of the complaints that we've been getting in. Right? That's all work, right? And that requires the CEO to roll up his or her sleeves and actually find out what's wrong with the product, why aren't people buying, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and fix the underlying problems. But now, when there's a negative sales report, that's not that's not what we do. What we do is we launch a massive marketing slash propaganda campaign where it's like we're geniuses, we're innovators, we we are on the cut the cutting edge, Joe, the cutting edge of nanotechnology or whatever you know whatever exactly yeah what it whatever is, is works like, whatever works. And what they found is that that's a lot easier to do. Great you know great slogans, great commercials great expense, you know, like, like they'll, they'll spend some money on a nice marketing campaign to make it seem like this is, these are like 1960s NASA scientists that we got under our belt here, you know, follow us. And what that does is that that actually increases the value of the stocks because it's a psychological thing. People believe that this is a magical company. And once they believe that's a magical, magical company, they're going to start investing in the long run, even if what they're producing is not all that magical. Yeah, and I and uh, and this has been this what we're talking about here is pretty much the case that short sellers are making for themselves right now, is that hey look we really now we understand what the value of this company is and mm-hmm. management is selling you something that we didn't necessarily or that we don't agree with, so here we come with the, this is the way we 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 think with it. now I I'm not necessarily a big proponent of short selling, but it is a it's a uh, another form of telling you that this company's not really performing what they're what they they said that they uh, at the level that they said they were, and it plays a role in bringing a little bit more transparency as and holding these co- companies accountable for some of the propaganda machines. Yes, that that exist, and now short sellers are just as guilty where they go out and they can spread a rumor about a stock or about a uh, company and they can destroy the company's value overnight. And that too is problematic. So I think that what we're really kind of getting at here is that how do we get good information in order to make a, a, a judgment on what the real value is of somebody, what somebody's performing. And sometimes it's not clear. Look, for the longest time, Amazon, made no prof- no profit 
you know, it, it made no profit and people were betting on its vision. Mm-hmm. So, and they obviously are now, you know, benefiting from a lot of the bets that they have made. That's what investing is all about to a certain degree. But I, I, I do think though, that there's a, that we're, we're, there's a couple different issues that we're unpacking here. You know, there's the fundamental value of companies and then there's also the fundamental value of the leaders of those companies and what they're bringing and how their behavior actually impacts everyone else. And I think that that's really something that's worth exploring because, you know, thought out there that you shouldn't be compensated, you know, X amount more than the lowest paid employee. And I kind of like that idea because then everybody has a stake in the company to a certain degree and CEOs are not going to necessarily comp and they're going to make decisions based on value by right. a certain point. And they'll be incentivized to pay employees at a, you know, at a higher rate. But I think that what they're producing at that point will actually reflect value a little bit more. If you have that type of compensation structure, I haven't thought that through though. No, I, I, there's a lot of things to unpack with what you said. First, um, I, I like the fact that you actually defended um, people who short the market because they do have market uh, utility. Like if a company is launching a propaganda campaign, um, I kind of think of short sellers as being um, it's almost like investigative journalists in a way. Right. They're, they're actually going in there and maybe exposing something uh, that the company at large is hiding. And they're also taking a huge risk because they risk infinite loss. So you have to be pretty darn sure. Like if you're, you know, if you're, if you're, if you really believe that a stock is going to go down, you have to be pretty damn sure about that. But I think the underlying issue behind both the short seller propaganda machine, you know, and the propaganda machine by the larger companies is that is trust and honesty. I think those those are the key ingredients that we're missing here is trust and honesty. You know, if a company like like you said earlier with Amazon, who, who let's say wasn't producing any sales or just was kind of like people were just investing based on the vision, that's okay. If you're if you're if your metric of, of value is based on vision and not sales, okay. But everything in that vision has to be highly detailed and has to be highly accurate. You can't be like selling pseudo technology or things that you think kind of will sort of kind of work in 30 years from now. You know, you right. have to make sure that what your your vision is actually accurate and has been tested and what you're selling is actually what it is. And that's the, the, all, all of these problems can really be solved with trust and honesty. And our people are naturally going to be more honest and trustworthy. Uh, maybe, maybe not. History tells us maybe not. So I think that having some consequences, you know, in addition to the model that you just gave where CEOs should not be earning, you know, 100 times more their lowest paid employees, I also think consequences is something because I think if you're a regular employee and you don't do your job or you lie or you, you know, steal from the cash register or whatever, you get fired, you know, or you may risk um, criminal prosecution. Like regular people are constantly punished, whether it's losing their job or if they do something illegal, criminal prosecution. What I also think is, is that like, if you want these CEOs and you want these people 
um, to be more honest, there has to be some consequences. There has to be, right. there has to be something that they lose. And I think that bailouts and, you know, these white shoe law firms that kind of get them off the hook, that kind of removes any of the consequence. So of course the behavior is going to continue to be corrupt if there's no consequences. Yeah, it gets to the idea of moral hazard, you know, and, and, and there, you know, the, essentially there are no consequences for your bad decisions. And, uh, you know, but I, I, you know, coming, it's not an easy problem to solve because value isn't always clear in the present moment. And that's where it's kind of you're betting on the future in certain cases. And that's where I, uh, when we're talking about value, we're really kind of talking about there's a, there's a big component to this. And didn't necessarily want to go down this road as to uh, what kind of liquidity there is in the market as well. Because what's money really worth at a certain point? And then what's really, what's the underlying value of the, of the companies that it's underpinning? And I, and I think that that's an interesting aspect of it as well. This is that there's, there are certainly market bubbles right now that you're yeah. seeing. And these bubbles are starting to really show themselves in different ways. And what we saw with GameStop is just one particular way that we're starting to see these, you know, uh, overvalued company or undervalued companies in certain cases. I kind of have like a, a different spin on GameStop. And then like, again, th this is all just things that I'm, I, I'm not an expert on what exactly is going on with them. But, you know, there's some people who say, oh, well, they've been over, you know, they've been overly shorted for too long or whatever. Um, then there's others that would argue that, you know, they are a brick and mortar store, sort of very similar to that of Blockbuster. And they, they were a dying dinosaur, you know, like so that you have both of those arguments being there. But what ends up happening is I, I kind of see this as a larger consciousness of like, hey, let's let's just take it to the man and like let's just like invest in this company and make it, uh, you know, closing on Friday, what like three twenty five a share or whatever, you know, like beyond, you know, like it's really it's like sitting there in the board, you know, there was this funny meme where they show like a picture of a uh, like Big Bird sitting in a corporate boardroom with like, um, you know, and you know with Microsoft and Amazon and companies that you know are have you know do have those like really high sales volumes, and it's like. I think that this is kind of a way of people just being like, you know, whether this company is undervalued, highly valued, we're just going to take this company and bring it to a like ridiculous, like ridiculous level because we inherently don't believe that the stock market is telling us the truth. I think that's the message that's being sent behind the GameStop stock is people just saying, we don't believe that this is at all accurate as to the conditions on the ground because and again i think it, it kind of um ferments from that frustration of like my job doesn't pay me enough if i'm lucky enough to have a job my job doesn't pay me enough to actually afford the things that we associate with middle class you know like americana basically it doesn't it doesn't like my wages do not allow me to be a middle class american and yet the stock market is telling me that everything is fine and this is people's anger kind of boiling up that they're, they're, they're becoming furious that the stock market is saying everything is a-okay 
but their livable wages are, are not able to produce that middle class prosperity. So they're basically, they're taking GameStop as an example of like, see how fake this is, see how imaginary this is, see how we could just artificially create our own propaganda machine and inflate the value of a company and do that. I think that's, that's what's kind of going on in this movement where people are saying, we can play the same tricks too. We, we, we can launch a massive uh, propaganda campaign on a subreddit and make a company worth whatever the hell we bloody feel it should be worth. It's funny you're saying that because, you know, something that just occurred to me that, that I hadn't really considered all that much, um, that this whole GameStop scenario is investors attack, attacking other investors. You know, that's literally what this was. Yes, there is a component to that. You know, well. we're going to attack you because we think that you manufacture value, and therefore we're going to, you know, come after you, instead of investors actually, you know, dick telling people, you know, you know, providing a service to people as to what the fundamental company is actually worth, mm-hmm. where you have short sellers saying it's not worth this, where you have management saying we're worth this, and then there's a certain decision that people are making in that in that process it it's more about i'm tired of you making money off of other people and then therefore we're going to inflate the value of this company and that's almost as if you were just it's almost a a form of class warfare that we're seeing and that's scary yeah there is that that's scary that's a different there's a different there's an element of that that exists with this and Part of this, it goes to the bigger theme as to what you were just saying, is that this market isn't really reflecting reality. It's not reflecting what people are feeling. It's, mm-hmm. not, re- it's not reflecting what value really is. And since it's not, we're going to show you that it can be gamed. The system can be gamed just as easily as you game it. And that's a very dangerous narrative to have going back and forth because, you know, there's a lot of other implications with that. I, um, but, and I think, I, I think yeah. that the ultimate, <laughs> I think that the ultimate thesis behind this is that the market is not reflecting reality. And to make the market right. reflect reality, these companies would have to pay livable wages. I think I think that if they really wanted, if they if they if they if the market reflected reality, well then the market would be tanking right now. It would be absolutely tanking. So if if it was really calibrated, well if you, if you, if the market was doing well, then you would have low numbers of unemployment, you would have tons of people working um, at livable wages, the average American citizen per capita would not have $80,000 in student loan debt, right? Like, and people would be buying homes and, and um, real value would be generated. People would be buying stuff and you, and companies would be profiting, which is the way capitalism is supposed to work. People buy stuff, companies get richer. It's like, it, I know that's a very uh, caveman, primitive, ape-like way of thinking of capitalism, but Sometimes like the simpler version of it is actually the true solution of it. People buy stuff, companies get wealthier. Oh, people have stopped buying. Let's train, let's build a better product. Let's change things around. But I think that this excessive marketing campaign of, of 
artificial value allows these companies to pay very low wages. It allows them to fight, to lay off tons of people. Like think, just think about this, Joe, think about the paradox that's going on here. You'll have companies that will announce layoffs, but then launch propaganda campaigns, making it seem like the most innovative thing. And their, their stock value doesn't really go down all that much. So just think about that logically that in the real world, if a company lays off a bunch of employees, that should be an indicator to everybody. Whoa, whoa, whoa! Something's 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 wrong in Candyland over there. Like, why are they laying off all these people? But companies have found a magical way where they can lay people off, deny people raises, deny them bonuses, but then they kind of offset that by a nice marketing campaign that makes it seem that makes it still seem like we have all of this innovation going on. So this is like the best thing that they have going for them is like we can do all the ugly stuff behind closed doors, but then the, the propaganda campaign is going to keep our share values still rocket high. And that needs to close. Once that's closed, then if a company lays off a bunch of employees, their value should drop. That's just that, that's just the consequence of laying off your employees. It means you're not doing well, and the market should reflect that. Any other way, any kind of loophole to that is really market distortion. Exactly, exactly. And and I think that this comes back to the bigger question as well as the idea of income inequality and and the disconnect that not only exists between market value and investors, but also management and the employees that you're starting to see this huge disconnect in, and, and, and the more that we're disconnected from one another, I think the more difficult that this problem is going to become is that you really have to look at something where what is valuable, what are you, what are you really deriving value from when you come in and you lay off a hundred, yeah, uh, well, not a hundred, but 15,000 employees you know, what do you really, what value are you bringing? Are you really reassessing what the company's doing or are you just cutting a bunch of jobs because, you know, do you think that'll make your bottom line look better yeah. uh, for in the, in the, in the, in the, in the short term, therefore it's going to provide you with a boost that you need. Are you really, because there is an element of where there are certain jobs that will go away. Right. So that they're, they just won't exist. That's where automation and some of these other issues do come into play. However, um, there is this, uh, this, and I keep thinking back to Jack Welch and they used to call him neutron Jack, where he would come <laughs> in and he would just, and he cut thousands of jobs and he was doing some things that were innovative, but he really, as far as I'm concerned, wasn't doing something that was innovative because he would have actually figured out how to use those people that he actually ended up cutting in certain cases. In the long run, GE actually had problems, you know, not underneath him per se, but the value of GE, I really felt, I always felt this, the value was over, it was overvalued while he was running it. And that was a real big problem, you know, that he was just sitting there cutting jobs, but he wasn't creating value for GE. And that you saw the consequences of that 15 years after he left. And now you're looking at something where, where you, and, and everybody wanted to blame Jeff Immel or, you know, and for them making bad bets, but it was a lot deeper than that. I really never felt like GE really reflected the value that the market was saying at the time Jack Welch did, and then eventually caught up to them. 
In other words, it wasn't sustainable. Yeah. And that's the bigger problem is that these guys don't look at sustainability. And I think that that's where if managers don't start looking at that, then they only look at the short term incentives that they have to pay themselves. Uh, that, that that's going to be problematic for all of us in the long run. You know, I 100% agree with that. And a, a good book that I really recommend is the book Leaders Eat Last by a guy named uh, Simon Sinek. And what he describes in his book is that there was a time in America where when a CEO had to lay off employees, it was actually considered something very shameful and it was actually right. considered somewhat of a, a taboo. Right. And if a, if a CEO laid off employees, that CEO was in disgrace. And it was, a, it was an indicator the CEO is not doing a good job. It was an indicator that the company was not doing well. And maybe the CEO had good reasons. Maybe there was some unforeseen thing that was happening on in the environment that the CEO could not prevent. Fine, fair enough. You know, flukes and accidents and hurricanes and so forth happened. But there was shame. There was shame attached to that action of laying off employees. And it was also usually followed with a decrease in value. Like if you're laying off employees, you're becoming what is known as like a smaller firm, right? It was this idea of the big firms and the smaller firms. And if you were a big firm, you actually gloated. Look how many employees we have. Like it was actually something that you it was like having employees at that time was like golden, like like rings or something. You were like, look, look how many employees we have. We're the big firm, right? And the small firm only hires that many people, right? What's happening now is that you can have very few employees. You can lay people off. And you can still act like you're a big boy. You can still act with no, you have no shame whatsoever. Your the valuation of your stock doesn't go down whatsoever. So I think the, the key things here is that the real indicators of progress, the real indicators of value, somewhere along the line, and maybe with GE, this, this kind of was accelerated, those kind of flew out the window where you could lay off employees, you could pay low wages. Uh, you know, I think Henry Ford bragged to people. He would actually brag to people, I pay my employees so much that they can afford the very cars that come off the assembly line. That was, that was his golden ring. That was like something, that was his swagger. That was something he would brag about. And for the longest time, like CEOs would feel shame if they, if they said, oh, well, you know, unfortunately, they would, in a very grim way, they would have a press conference. Unfortunately, you know, we've had to let 5,000 people go today. It's, it's just, you know, it's terrible. Um, but now that we've removed the stigma and the shame and with no consequence, you just see this behavior accelerating. And there's no, and, and it's really a lot of this is a psychological game, my friend. It's really, it's really, it's not really about nuts and bolts. There's a lot of psychology that's at, at, at play here. I think so too. I think that the, and, and you know, it's funny. And I had once led a discussion on the idea of the value of shame. Yeah. And you know, that there, there, there is a value to it. You should be shame, ashamed. If you lay off that many people, it is a failure on your part. And, you know, that that in this particular instance where and I'll take I, and I don't mean to beat up on him because he's not the only individual that did this, but Jack Welch. OK, he actually got a reputation as Neutron Jack that would somebody that would cut people and he was rewarded for it and actually even celebrated for it. Yeah. And 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 so 
that to me is where we've really kind of gone wrong is that instead of figuring out solutions to problems and underlying issues that the company may be having with its value. And I'm not saying that every job can be saved. It, it's just, it's not possible in the, in, in, in the age of automation. It really isn't. Now, I do think there is a lot more that can be done with figuring out what else these employees can do. I really do. I, mm -hmm. I, I don't think it's as simple as laying people off as quickly as possible just to make your bottom line look good. I, I again, I, I do come back to the idea that it was, you know, you were seen as a leader that you failed to produce something of value enough where you could keep people employed. And that's where it now turned into the fact that, hey, I'm going to create value by cutting people. And this, this, it's a reverse, it is psychology. It's a psychological thing that, that we start to believe that, and then people actually think they should be rewarded for this type of behavior. It, it's actually, and, and what happens is what people don't understand is, as we were saying in the, in the beginning of the podcast altogether, this isn't sustainable. No, it's not. And that's the problem, that this is where business leaders are really kind of missing it, is that the, the process that we're discussing isn't necessarily a sustainable business model, or at least for our, our economy. And I, I think that the compensation structure is, again, and what we celebrate and what we, because compensation structure is actually an indication of what we value. Sure, absolutely. So, I mean, it's an indication. If you come in and you bring somebody in that's going to lay everybody off, you, you're showing people this is what we value. And that's a problem. I mean, there should look, look, my friend, I think one easy way to fix this is that if you lay off employees, then your compensation at the very least needs to go down. Just, and this makes sense on a numerous on numerous logical levels because one, when you lay off employees, you say that we have less money and we can't afford to pay these people. Therefore, we have less money to pay moi and my my salary and and my compensation should be lowered. And two, it should be a little a bit of a punishment of like you're the captain of this ship. Not everything is your fault, but you know the captain is the last one to leave the sinking ship. Everyone needs to get right. off that ship. The captain is the last one. Titanic, whatever, captain went down, last one on the ship. That's the kind of mentality that we need. When you're laying people off, when you're paying people minimum wage, that's that's shame right there. That's that's absolute shame. And you and 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 these people should feel ashamed. Are they going to shame themselves? Probably not. But we as a, a collective society need to start getting back to those values where it's like, hey, man, you know, while your employees were earning minimum wage, hey, man, while you were ending, while you while you laid off all of these employees and prevented them from supporting their families and, and forced them to, like, lose their homes, you know, you you received all of this money for nothing. Once we bring back that shame, and I love, I, you know, people in, the, in our day, day and age, like, oh, have no shame. I'm like, no, no, no. Shame, shame needs to make a huge comeback. And once, 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 shame, yeah. once shame makes a, a huge comeback and we're actually valuing people who are actually bringing real value to things, 
then I, I think the world will, will stop being a, so, so upside down as it is right now. There's a lot more that we need to talk about this, but um, Joe, thank you so much for being on the show today. Hey, thanks for having me, Aaron. This was a really great conversation. This concludes the 111th episode of the Truth Island podcast. I'm Aaron Azrod.